Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Hey, welcome back to the program. It's no secret that I like to read, and I like to read books, the paper kind. Yeah, I have a Kindle because I want to be able to have a lot of books with me when I travel without having to carry all the extra poundage. It's an acceptable compromise, but when I'm home, I read books. I have a decent library of about 5,000 titles in my office, a collection that I'm constantly culling and refreshing. On the other side of the basement, I have boxes and boxes of all the books that got culled. Give them away? Are you nuts? My library is divided into sections based on Steve's system of book organization, not Dewey Decimal. My desk, where I'm working right now, is in the middle of my library. So starting over there to my right is the travel section, a combination of travel essays. In fact, it's mostly travel essays and some guidebooks. I love the titles. I should have stayed home. In Search of the Pink-Headed Duck. No Touch Monkey. African Silences, Song of the Forest. From there, we move down to the section on cross-cultural transition, a collection of books about cultural re-entry, a topic that I wrote a book about a while ago and I lecture on occasionally. Then we have a big collection of children's books down low so my grandkids can reach them. From there, we move on to the section on scuba diving, which, as a lot of you know, was and is a big part of my life. From there, the books sort of transition to marine biology, and then biology, and then general nature. Lots of good titles in here. The original, now out-of-print, ocean exploration series by Jacques Cousteau. Mask and Flippers by Lloyd Bridges, the star of the 1950s TV show Sea Hunt. Between Pacific Tides by Ed Ricketts, a classic. A Complete Field Guide to North American Wildlife. Zoology, a tiny golden book field guide that I've had since I was eight. Now below those I have general science, a gigantic handbook of chemistry and physics, the molecular biology of the gene by Watson and Crick, Asimov's chronology of the world, Gray's anatomy. And now we segue into the section that gets the most use, nature essays and books about writing. This is where we find authors like Lauren Isley, Bernd Heinrich, John McPhee, Annie Dillard, Bill Bryson, William Least Heat Moon, all people who inspire me to write and inspire me to work hard to be good at it. Some of these are among my favorite books of all time. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Blue Highways, All the Strange Hours, The Control of Nature, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Okay, now we're turning the corner and looking at the books on the shelves behind me. 
world history, global affairs, U.S. history, California history, Vermont history, New Mexico history, all places I've lived, all places that made me who I am. From there, it's on to literature. This section is a hodgepodge of memorable titles that got to me for whatever reason. Tales of a Wayside Inn, A Canticle for Leibowitz, The Complete Works of P.G. Wodehouse, The Milagro Beanfield War, Ishmael, The Lord of the Rings, The Development of Arthurian Romance. Next, directly behind me, is Geopolitics and Globalization. Every book ever written by Robert Kaplan, Tom Friedman, Bernard Lewis, and Michael Porter are on these shelves. And below those are my technology books, many of them my own. Over my left shoulder, there's a substantial section on photography, maybe 500 books all told. And then the largest section in my library, Spanish language stuff. History, grammar, phonetics, philology, literature, original books from the 9th and 16th centuries purchased in flea markets around Spain. And then, to round everything out, along the bottom of all the bookshelves at floor level, except where the children's books are, I have reference books. The Complete Oxford English Dictionary, at least a dozen other dictionaries, art books, an enormous Audubon's Birds of America, 20 pounds at least. Now, like I said, I like to read, and I love books. I love what they teach me. I love how they smell. I love how they feel. I love how they help me escape into fantastic places. And because I've written quite a few of them myself, I know how much effort and love and commitment goes into every single one of them. How can I not be inspired by what I'm surrounded by? I also love the fact that I have some books with very weird titles on my shelf that make people who run across them wonder why in the world I have them. The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. Awesome book. Weeding Out the Wankers by my friend Brahim Gideon. Equally awesome. The Verse by the Side of the Road, which tells the history of the Burma Shave Company and the signs that I used to see on road trips with my parents and my brothers when I was a kid. Cows I Have Known by Will Gillespie. The Smithsonian Book of Books. Wow. And perhaps the best of all, the one that makes people shake their heads and look at me with a certain amount of pathetic sympathy, and oh, by the way, the actual topic of this particular podcast is a book called Barbs, Prongs, Points, Prickers, and Stickers, a complete and illustrated catalog of antique barbed wire. I admit it, I not only own this book, I paid for it, and I love it. It helps me make sense of my collection of antique barbed wire, which will be the subject of another podcast. So I want you to go on, roll your eyes, shake your head, but if you've gotten this far, hang around. I want to talk about what this all has to do with curiosity, human connection, and believe it or not, telecommunications. So you didn't see that coming, did you? Well, it turns out that in the mid-1800s, when the great Western expansion was in full swing in the emerging United States as part of the doctrine of manifest destiny, Technology and its impact were in full swing. First came the railroad, driving westward from Chicago toward the newly opened western reaches of the continent, rapidly accelerating growth with the ability to transport goods and people from one side of the country to the as-yet-undefined other side in days rather than years. But the implications of railroad expansion went far beyond the physical transport of stuff. To have a railroad, you had to have rails— and to have rails, you had to have right-of-way. 
And as long as there were rights of way, there was no reason why they couldn't be used for other services that needed the same kinds of right of way. Telegraph initially in 1844, and then telephony 32 years later when Alexander Graham Bell announced his new invention in 1876. In fact, one of the best-known names in the American telephone industry is Sprint. The company isn't called that because their service is fast. They're called that because their name is an acronym. It stands for Southern Pacific Railroad Internal Network for Telephony. You see, Southern Pacific built a communications network alongside its rail lines to provide a mechanism for intra-company communications a long time ago, a network that ultimately became a public long-distance company. It's also not a coincidence that the two industries, telephony and railroad, share a lot of nomenclature and terminology. Both have networks, both have trunk lines, both have local lines, both have switches, both have online and offline states of operation. But railroads and rights-of-way and telegraph networks and early telephone lines weren't the only new technologies that transformed the continent. Not only did a new form of human communications happen, Joseph Glidden happened. The big industry in America in the 1800s was cattle. As I described in an earlier podcast, most of the cattle that went to Chicago came from Texas initially, driven there over the Chisholm Trail from Fort Worth to Independence, Kansas, where they were loaded on train cars bound for the meatpacking plants in Chicago. But then the West was opened, and as the movie Lonesome Dove shows, cattle production moved to the high plains of the Northwest, dooming the Texas cattle drives, which ended full stop in 1885. Now, as all this was happening, the central grasslands of the U.S. were being gridded into rangeland by fences to keep free-roaming cattle off the rail lines and to slow down the work of rustlers. But these are big, strong animals, and they made short work of the wood and iron wire fences that tried to keep them penned. They'd just walk through them. So in 1874, two years before Bell's telephone was invented, Joseph Glidden took a hand-cranked coffee grinder fiddled with it, and soon had a machine that would twist barbs onto double-strand fence wire. Now, these barbs weren't sharp enough to penetrate the thick hide of the cattle, but they were sharp enough to make them think twice before shoving their way through the fence line. So Glidden's invention became wildly popular and began to be strung all over cattle country. Meanwhile, on the eastern side of the continent, another inventor was busy with his own invention— Alexander Graham Bell was inventing the telephone. Now, I love the history of telephony. I've spent my whole career in the industry because it demonstrates what can happen when an idea whose time has come, well, actually comes. At first, telephone lines were a one-to-one service. In other words, if I wanted to be able to call my friend Dennis, then I needed a phone and a line between my house and his. If I also wanted to be able to call my friend Pete, I needed another phone and another line. You can see where this is going. Not only was the service inordinately expensive, but it also threatened to bring on the next ice age since we were filling the skies with wire and blocking all the sunlight. Clearly, something had to give. Well, luckily, the inventive spirit didn't end with the telephone, and soon the architecture of the telephone network changed so that all the phone lines ran to a central location, a place that came to be known as the exchange or the central office, where the first switches who were, of course, human operators, would manually put up and tear down calls for customers. So, if I wanted to call Pete, 
I'd go to the phone on the wall, pick up the handset, and turn the crank on the side of the box. You've all seen this in the movies. The crank was really a generator that caused a light to flash or a bell to ring in front of an operator in the central office who would plug in her headset and ask me who I wanted to be connected to. She would then put up a patch cable between my line and, in this case, Pete's line, at which point she'd turn another crank, which would cause Pete's phone to ring. Magic. She'd then periodically plug in and listen to determine when we were done talking, and when we were, she'd pull down the patch cord. Well, that model worked really well in the big city, but it didn't work all that well in rural areas, which still made up the vast majority of the country. In fact, it still does. It would be another 40 years or so, 1934, before Congress would sign into law the Communications Act, which mandated that telephony must be both universal and affordable throughout the country, and would at the same time order regulators to put into place a subsidy model that would help pay for the immense cost of service delivery. I mean, just think about it for a second. If a customer lives downtown, across the street from the central office, the provisioning of service is easy, straightforward, relatively cheap. But if they live on a ranch, 20 miles outside of town, on the other side of a river and two deep ravines, that's a different story because the cost has to be the same. It must be affordable. So phone companies weren't all that interested in the early days in getting service to those far-flung customers. And these were big ranches, which meant that there were very few customers on a very large piece of land. Customer density was low. It just wasn't cost-effective for them to offer the service, and as we said, it would be another 40 years before subsidies kicked in that would make it worth their while. Well, luckily, it also turns out that they weren't the only people out there with inventive skills. Farmers and ranchers had their own, and they put them to work. Just because the phone company was unwilling to run phone lines to their properties didn't mean they didn't want telephones. Well, as far as I know, Joseph Glidden and Alexander Graham Bell never actually met each other, but they did come together in a remarkable way. Thanks to Glidden, by the time the mid-1880s rolled around, barbed wire ran all over the place, thousands upon thousands of miles of the stuff, and while it was created and strung to separate neighbors, it also served to connect them to each other. Barbed wire is made of iron, which means that it conducts electricity. And if it conducts electricity, there's no reason why it can't carry telephone calls. So what these inventive, enterprising landholders did was buy telephones and then run wire from the phones in their houses to the nearest fence line. Once they were all connected, a rancher only had to turn the crank on their phone to generate ringing current, and the phones connected to the fence would ring. And by the way, all the phones would ring at the same time. These were the first of what were called party lines, and now that I think about it, they might have been the first forms of electronic social media. When the phone rang, everybody answered, until some clever person figured out that they could assign ringing patterns to each party on the line. So two short rings might be your code, two shorts and a long might be mine, and three shorts might be Pete's code. So all a person had to do was listen for their coded ringing pattern. Of course, this didn't mean that people didn't get bored and listen in on other people's conversations. These party lines were also a source of entertainment, as it turns out. As the systems became a bit more sophisticated, sometimes the operator would ring a special code that meant that a local performer was going to sing, and everybody could listen in on the party line. 
Today we call that streaming. Or there might be a special code that said that somebody with a radio was going to hold the phone next to it when the weather broadcast came on so that all the farmers and ranchers would know what to expect over the next few days. It wasn't perfect, but given the alternative, it was pretty darn good. So the next time you see a barbed wire fence, give it a nod and a silent thank you for delivering telephone service to places that otherwise wouldn't have had it for another half century or so. Oh, and one more thing. Remember my book about barbed wire and how you rolled your eyes and shook your head when I told you I owned it? Well, the table of contents in that book has 11 pages of varieties of barbed wire. It's actually pretty amazing stuff. And yes, it's weird that I own the book about it, but what can I say? I'm a curious guy. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.